When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, we are so pleased to have the opportunity to stitch together some rarer pieces of American fashion history today. And along the way, bust a few fashion history myths, <laughs> Yay! <laughs> which is, of course, something that we love to do on Dressed. And today's subject has famously been called, quote, society's best kept secret by the Saturday Evening Post. And that is because for more than 50 years, Anne Lowe was in many ways American fashion's fairy godmother, spinning the sartorial dreams of thousands of debutantes and brides into reality. And I'm sure our listeners are going to join us in saying we are so excited for this episode. You know, we've talked about Anlo so many times on the show. So, so, so excited to hear your interview with Liz today, April. And as new scholarship on Lowe's life and career have emerged over the last several years, the narrative that Lowe operated in the couture tradition and complete anonymity has been somewhat countered. As we will learn more about today, in her time, Lowe was a much beloved and highly respected designer within the American fashion industry. And in addition to her own one-of-a-kind creations, her career also saw her working in partnership with the leading American fashion purveyors, including Hattie Carnegie, Neiman Marcus, iMagnon and Saks Fifth Avenue. And that's just to name a few. Sought after for her opinions on fashion by the New York Times and Ebony Magazine, Lowe's career paved a path in American fashion for many of the Black designers who followed in her footsteps. And Cass, this is something that I was completely unaware of before I started working on the episode. And this is that Anne Lowe opened her doors to clients in New York City in 1928. And that is the exact same year that Elizabeth Hawes opened her custom salon in New York City. So, you know, this is this exceptionally early kind of pivotal point in the American fashion design movement. So if this was considered, you know, a very daring move for Elizabeth Hawes with her Paris training, her Vassar education, and all of her elite social connections, it was all the more risky for Anne as a black designer. And because of course, she was also facing the era's institutionalized racism. And let's not forget that segregation had only officially been ended in New York City eight years earlier in 1920. 
So would her gamble pay off? Yeah, and I have to say this was one of those like surprises and aha moments for me too. And I'm very familiar with her work from the 1950s and 1960s, but I had absolutely no idea it extended all the way back. So to the 1920s, which is just incredible and so, so cool. And of course, fast forward from the 20s, four decades, and Lowe proudly told reporters for Ebony Magazine that with the assistance of her staff of 35, her atelier produced a thousand custom creations a year. A thousand! Most of which were unique. They were never to be replicated again. And Anne Lowe gowns always have the most utmost attention to detail. You know, they have the highest quality and construction. I mean, her gowns really rival any haute couture creation emerging from Paris at this time. And they brought in a gross sum of what would today be $3 million. A year. And yet, (laughs) a year. (laughs) And yet Lowe's career for all of its high points and accolades really did come with its own unique set of challenges. Cass, as you know, I very recently attended a two-day symposium at Winterthur Museum, where the exhibition Anne Lowe, American Couturier is now on view. And I have to say, it was one of the best fashion symposiums that I've ever been to. Um, It was just every single little detail was thought through. The speakers were amazing. And the conference was uniquely dedicated to Lowe and her legacy. And it didn't only cover her career, but it also covered some of the more hidden aspects that go into mounting fashion exhibitions, such as the conservation work that brought a lot of Lowe's creations, you know, back to life, refreshed them for exhibition purposes. And I learned so much at this conference. I bet I'm not the only one who walked away from that weekend feeling this way because it was exceptionally well attended. It was a delight to make some new friends and also see a a few familiar faces that I hadn't seen in a few years. Yes, I so, so wish I could have joined you because this is really a groundbreaking exhibition in so many ways. And speaking of familiar faces, April, our regular listeners will need no introduction to today's guest, Elizabeth Way, who is guest curator of the Winter Tour exhibition, Anne Lowe, American Couturier. April, you and Liz, of course, work together at FIT, where she serves as the Associate Curator of Fashion at the museum at FIT. So she was moonlighting a bit for this exhibition at Winter Tour. And Liz is one of the foremost authorities on Anne Lowe, and she's also the editor of the fantastic book, Black Designers in American Fashion. So we are so pleased to welcome her back. Thank you, Liz, for joining us today on Dressed. Liz, a very enthusiastic welcome back to Dressed. Thank you so much for having me, April. I love being on Dressed, and it's an honor to be back. Yeah, well, this is your third time on the show now, so you are officially in the running um, for one of our most frequent guests. I think you are currently tied with um, Dr. Benjamin Wild and Dr. Kate Strasden. Very good company to be in. <laughs> I kind of feel like we should do like that thing that they do on SNL when they do the Five Timers Club and we should give you like a dress detective hat or something. Yeah, a piece of clothing for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, those are still fictive in our universe. Maybe someday <laughs> we will actually make dress detective hats. But thank you again for being here. Thank you for having me. Our topic today has been so requested by our listeners over our entire six-year run of the podcast now. So we're super happy to be able to deliver it for once and for all. And I happen to know that your work on Anne Lowe has its own interesting backstory before we even get to Ms. Lowe. Could you tell us about how you were first introduced to the designs of Anne Lowe and kind of the trajectory of your work on her 
which has followed. Absolutely. So I was in graduate school at NYU, and I needed a summer internship. And I was very lucky to get an internship at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. It was perfect for me because it was near my parents' house, and it paid. And those were the two things I was looking for (laughs) for the summer. Dream come true. But this was before the museum was even built. So we were in office space. And I worked with an amazing curator of culture named Elaine Nichols, who is in charge of their fashion and textiles, as well as toys and many other departments in the museum. And she set me to work on the Black Fashion Museum collection. Mm -hmm. So this was an entire museum that was established by a woman named Lois Alexander Lane, who lived in New York. It was in Harlem. And it was a beautiful and I think the first American museum that was specifically looking at Black American designers. Mm -hmm. And that museum um, eventually closed. It was very small. But luckily, the Smithsonian took the entire collection. And so now it lives on as a part of Namak. And so the collection had come in and there hadn't been any research really on it. And so she just sent me to work researching. And two of the names that I'd come across were Elizabeth Keckley and Anne Lowe. And I was just completely fascinated because they had the most interesting life stories. They had beautiful material culture. And it was really actually very prominent in American fashion, even though I'd never heard of these designers. So I ended up writing my master's thesis on those two designers. And that set me on my trajectory of Anne Lowe. Yeah. Well, and also, too, it's very interesting because there's little tidbits about both of their lives that are kind of parallel each other, which is fascinating. Absolutely. And so I know we're going to talk about Ann Lowe's background, but she was born into a family of dressmakers, and her grandmother had been an enslaved dressmaker, as Elizabeth Keckley was. Mm -hmm. They were able to attain their freedom and open businesses in a time when Black women had very few employment opportunities. Yeah. And I would say that perhaps more than any other designer that we have profiled on the show, because we don't always do designer profiles, but Lowe's origin story is incredibly important to understanding the context of not just her work, but also her life. So can we start at the beginning? Uh, Would you tell us about Lowe's family background and also her childhood? Yes. So she was born in a town called Clayton, Alabama. And we think about 1898. Census records tell us different things. But again, she uh, was born into this family of very prominent dressmakers. Her grandmother and mother established a business during the Reconstruction era, the Jim Crow era in Montgomery, Alabama. And their clients were some of the most elite, wealthiest white women in the state. During the 1910s, the governor's wife was a client. And so Lowe started training with them from a very young age. She talks about how at the age of six, she would go out into the garden with her Uh, grandmother's and mother's dress scraps and start to fashion flowers out of fabric. And flowers are going to be a big motif in her career later on. So she um, marries very young. If her birth date is 1898, she was married by the time she was 12, which is very young even for that time in the rural South. And her husband, who was a tailor, did not want her to continue to work. She had a baby, and she stepped away from the dressmaking business. But one of the things I really want to emphasize is that even though she learned at home, she was learning at a professional level. She was an apprentice. You know, my mom taught me how to sew, but I certainly not in any way related to the way she was trained as a dressmaker and designer. Yeah, well, and it was also circumstances that truncated her youth a bit. What do we know about that space within this first marriage and also the events which led to her really turning professional? Well, 
So there's not that much information. She didn't talk very much about her first marriage. Um, her son was with her, you know, moved with her when she moved around the country until he died very tragically and prematurely. Um, so she always had her son with her, who was an important part of her family. But her first marriage was something that um, she didn't really go into. She was very, very young. He was older. And, you know, she also came from a part of the country in which education for black children was not prioritized. Mm-hmm. And really the first researcher to really look at Anne Lowe is a woman named Margaret Powell. And she and her her master's thesis talked about the education system. Um, you know, black children were not given opportunities to learn, and they weren't given resources. And so this woman would have would have had very few options at this point in her life. You know, her education in math would have been subpar. I mean, and then not to mention not just learning math, but you know, things about checking and balancing accounts and things like as far as we know, these weren't things that she had firm education in, which isn't to say that her mother and grandmother didn't also teach her these things. But like many, many designers, she wasn't really interested in the numbers <laughs> in the business. Of course. And so that also ha- played a big role in kind of her future business acumen. Well, she lost her mother very young. And this is kind of the the turning point, which prompted her to turn professional. Would you tell us about that? So in 1914, at the age of 16, Lo loses her mother. And this was between Christmas and New Year's. And so there was a very large order from a very prominent group of women who wanted to attend the governor's New Year's Eve ball. So Lo stepped in and finished the work that her mother had started. And she delivered these dresses on time. And she talks about how her mother's clients said that she was as good as her mother. And she said that this was a period of my life where I felt like I could do anything, that I had the skills, I had the talent, I had, um, you know, the wherewithal to do this, to work professionally. Mm -hmm. Well, and what followed next took a little bit of a curious twist. This is not perhaps necessarily normal in most fashion designers' trajectories within their career. And I also want to point out that this these are the years of World War I that we're talking about. These are the 19-teens. So what happened in 1916 that altered the course of her life? So Lowe, even though she was out of the dressmaking business, continued to make her own clothing. And she was in an Alabama department store. We're not quite sure why, whether she was working as a seamstress. She wouldn't have been working as a sales girl. Mm -hmm. She might have been in there um, kind of shopping for other people. But of course, the Jim Crow South would have enforced racial segregation. But she was in this department store, and she was spotted by a woman named Josephine Lee. So um, Josephine Lee was from Alabama, but she currently lived outside of Tampa, Florida. Her uh, husband was a very wealthy citrus business man. When she saw Lowe's Ensemble, she asked her, where did you get this? I don't see clothes like this around here. And Lowe said, I made I made this myself. And so she offered her a job on the spot to come and live with her family in outside of Tampa, Florida to sew for herself and her four daughters. So she hired her to be her live-in dressmaker. Yeah, yeah. And this is a little bit of an unusual story, right? This is, you don't hear about this happening happening terribly often. Now, women at this time very often had dressmakers that they worked with directly and, you know, for long periods of time, had an established relationship with. But having a live-in dressmaker is a very luxurious proposition. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, Josephine Lee must have had a really refined taste for fashion and really wanted clothes to help her and her daughter stand out out um, in their social circle. So she must have been very highly motivated and really loved fashion to 
take on a live-in dressmaker, and she really recognized the quality and the eye that Anne Lowe presented. Uh, and that ended up being a very close, familial, nourishing relationship for several years. Absolutely. Lowe's husband didn't want her to go, so she left him. She took her son, and she moved into the Lee family household, and she remained close with them. They were friends her entire life. And I just think it's, I just want to mention very briefly that two of the daughters were twins, and they loved to dress alike. So she was creating, many times, matching ensembles for the twins, which is, I think is incredibly charming. Lowe's first assignment when she got to the Lee household was to make the wedding dresses and trousseaus for the two oldest daughters who were marrying brothers in a double wedding. Mm -hmm. So these two twins were very much in sync in their social lives. Yeah, well, and this whole theme of wedding dresses will will reemerge again in her her career. But um, this sojourn um, in Tampa was briefly interrupted by a little tiny stint in New York City. What was she doing here in... um, Correct me if I'm wrong, 1917? 1917. So she lived with the Lees. She was working professionally for them. And she decided she wanted to go to fashion school. And so by this point in her life, she was in her late teens. She was in her early 20s, late teens. She had already been working for years. She was on a professional level. But she wanted to go to New York and attend fashion school. I think for many of the reasons people want to attend today, to build networks, to kind of get their foot in the city. And she was there for six months. She applied by correspondence. And when she showed up for her first day, the schoolmaster hadn't realized that she was black. And so even though she was leaving the Jim Crow South, I believe this was her first experience outside of the South, um, she was running into segregation. And the school actually segregated her away in a separate classroom away from the other students. Yeah, but what happened? So her work was so (laughs) meticulous. She was so advanced that very soon, you know, the teacher would come in, they look, take a look at her work and go and show it to the rest of the students. And the students would come and stand by the door to watch her work. She graduated in half the time it took the other students. Yeah, she was supremely talented. Um, Not that she didn't work hard, but she just had this skill that others were very much in awe of. Absolutely. And you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about getting that 10,000 hours. She got that as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And so she was able to build on those advanced skills for the rest of her life. Right, right. Well, she returns back to the Lee family in Tampa for several years. While she was there, she was also designing for the broader community at large. So who became Ann Lowe's customer base at that time and then really moving forward because she comes back to New York again in the late 1920s? Yes. So she her business grows from the Lee family circle through their friends. And they're very socially elite, um, a wealthy family. And so their friends and acquaintances are also on that social level. And so Lowe starts making dresses for them and grows her business. Mm-hmm. Around 1920, she remarries. So she moves out of the Lee family home with her new husband, Caleb West, into a black neighborhood. And she establishes her salon behind her home. And these very wealthy, young, white women are running in and out of this atelier at all hours. During the 20s, she was known for being able to make a dress in one day. That's amazing. So they would come in the morning, drop off fabric, and then they would bring their dates to her salon at night so that they could change immediately into their clothes and go out. So you see these contradictions and um, the restrictions of the Jim Crow era really have this flexibility when it serves kind of elites. And so Lowe always looked back at her time in Tampa as a very fond 
time in her life, that she loved her customers. She loved kind of the role she played in their community. And and these weren't just day dresses or, or date dresses. She garnered a lot of clients within the debutante realm and special events, special occasion wear. Lowe became very well known for a couple of specialty items, her evening wear in particular. So what was her customer base for, for those items? So she worked with a lot of debutantes. Um, you know, the social season was practiced in Tampa, like it would have been practiced in New York or London or Paris. And there were all of these debutante balls, but also Gasparilla. So Gasparilla is an annual event that still happens in Tampa. And it's based on the legend of a pirate um, from the 1400s, I believe. But in the 1920s, the Gasparilla Festival included a royal court. And so the elite young women, I think probably the most popular debutante would be elected the queen and there'd be courtiers. And every year there was a different theme. So being the 20s, we had an Egyptian theme, we have Chinese themes, we have historical English themes, and Lowe was commissioned to make the court gowns between 1924 and 1928. This was a huge commission, especially for a black woman at this time. And so we really see this amazing creativity because these are fantasy gowns. These are costumes. We see this beautiful, amazing detail that certainly is in conversation with fashion of the 1920s, but really is its own kind of thing. Right. And, and then there is a whole history of haute couturiers doing fancy dress. Charles Frederick Worth did a ton of it. That is a whole other narrative within the history of fashion. So, so far, we have really been setting up the trajectory of Lowe's life. We're going to take a brief sponsor break, but we will return to discuss her signature style and exceptional skills as a couturier. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Welcome back. Liz, we have yet to really discuss Lowe's signature style and her exceptional prowess as a maker. How would you sum up the Anne Lowe look? And would you tell us a little bit more about some of her special techniques that she is known for? Absolutely. So Lowe's career spanned from the 1910s through 1972 when she retired. And so she lived through an enormous amount of fashion change. And so we can look at things that she did in the 20s and the 30s. Um, and really, she specializes in beautiful hand details, the beading. She was known for a technique that we call fussy cutting, where she would cut out motifs, mostly flowers from the print of a fabric, meticulously hand overcast hand 
hand finish these um, pieces of fabric and then kind of collage them together to create um, motifs on the uh, printed fabric. Embroidery applique, she hand painted flowers. So flowers were something that we see come up again and again in her work. But really her signature was just kind of these beautiful layers of embellishment. And those layers went down deep into the dress. So we look at her 1950s and 60s pieces that are much more structured than her 20s or 30s. She has a very specific way of building her bodices. And I can only imagine that this is a technique that she learned from her grandmother. When the new look comes in in 47, this is really kind of her aesthetic heyday. This is the aesthetic that she really loves. And I think that the connections between the new look and kind of mid-19th century fashion, it's no coincidence that that she finds affinity with this style. She already had the techniques in the back. <laughs> she already knew where, to, where she was going next. One of the things that really struck me when looking at all the garments in person at the exhibition was the exceptional quality of, well, everything, basically, from the materials to the construction. What are some of the types of materials that Lowe favored using? She uses a lot of silks. That's really kind of the number one fabric that we see. Um, but she wasn't no stranger to synthetics. Uh, we have a beautiful dress in the Winterthur exhibition from 1941. It's a wedding gown made of acetate, because by this time, we're already seeing those silk shortages coming from the conflicts in Asia. Nylon tulle, French nylon tulle is something that she uses during the early 60s. So she is dealing with all of these new materials that are coming out at this time. And we also see foam bus pads and things, things that actually have not fared so well conservation-wise. But these were new kind of materials that were really popular um, during the 50s and 60s. When we look inside of her work, we see um, the boning, the meticulous elastics that she put on the inside. Her dresses were known for always fitting perfectly Mm -hmm. and that the wearer didn't need to wear a bra or a girdle. Everything was built in. She would hand ruche pieces of um, phi to line the inside of the hem to keep hem out and she finished her seams with lace binding. So all of these little beautiful techniques that are not completely unique to her, but the combination and the way she did it, you can always look inside an Anne Lowe gown from the 50s or 60s and recognize her work. Right, right. And, and uh, you know, these are couture techniques. She is working at the couture level. You know, at the symposium, somebody made the very uh, real point that she was doing it all herself or within her team. And she was training many of the members of her team in these haute couture techniques. And that wasn't just hand sewing, but, you know, the feathers and all of the ribbon details and all of these little things, she was just supremely gifted. Absolutely. She, you know, in Paris, you would have all these beautiful houses that could do embroidery or beading or feather work for you. She was doing that all herself. She was sourcing in a New York fashion industry that's a little more robust than it is today. So there were these specialized suppliers, but all that labor was happening in her workshop. Right, right, right. Well, many of these garments that are in the exhibition have histories that come along with them. Do you have a couple of favorites that you might like to recount for our listeners? So some of my favorite pieces are ones that were actually altered by Mm -hmm. their clients. So we opened the exhibition um, with a beautiful gown that was worn by a woman named Lynn Neville Robinson. And she was a countess in a ball called the Axar Ben ball in 1961. This was in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, a commission for Axar Ben went to New York to um, find a designer and they found Lowe at Saks Fifth Avenue where she was at the time. It's this beautiful, over-the-top, pale pink, uh, layered tulle dress with um, beautiful beaded embroidery on it. Lowe made 33 of these gowns. Amazing. But the wearer, um, after the event, uh, she added a white 
petticoat underneath just to lighten up the color a bit. And then she wore it as her wedding gown. And I really love that. We have another debutante gown from the Smithsonian that was started life as a white gown, but then it was dyed blue. And the the, don- the woman who wore it donated it and explained that it's very, very gauche to wear white to someone else's debut. But she wanted to rewear this dress. And so she had it dyed this beautiful blue color. So I think that really speaks to, first of all, how special it was to have a custom-made gown by this time, um, as it would be today. But that the wearers really loved these pieces and they wanted to, to extend their life beyond one occasion. So at this point um, in her history, we have to talk about Anne Lowe's greatest claim to fame today, which is, of course, creating the wedding gown for Jacqueline Bouvier and also the bridesmaids dresses, which is, of course, perhaps lesser known than the actual wedding gown itself. Um, So for a lot of these commissions that Lowe was taking on, as you mentioned, for the Axar Ben Ball, you know, she's making 30 plus gowns. For weddings, she's doing the wedding gown and all the bridesmaids dresses as well. So would you tell us a little bit about this particular commission? Because this moment in her career was kind of equal parts triumph and trials and tribulations. Absolutely. So Lowe's most famous dress without a doubt is Jacqueline Kennedy's 1953 wedding dress. Jacqueline Kennedy's mother was a very loyal client of Anne Lowe, uh, Janet Auchincloss, and she brought all of her daughters to Lowe for their debutante dresses. The wedding dress that uh, Jacqueline Bouvier at that time commissioned from Lowe was her second wedding dress that she went to Lowe for. Her first engagement fell through. And so Lowe was really excited to make this commission. She respected Janet Auchincloss a lot. She liked Jacqueline Bouvier. She talked about how sweet and kind she was. And this was the wedding of the year. Um, Jacqueline Bouvier had already been named debutante of the year 1947. So she already had this profile. At this time, Vogue was covering these socialites a lot more than they do today. And uh, John F. Kennedy was a freshman senator, but already making a huge splash. So this was a very highly anticipated wedding. So 10 days before the wedding, which was to take place in Newport, Rhode Island, a water pipe burst in Ann Lowe's workroom and ruined the wedding dress as well as nine of the bridesmaids dresses. I mean, she talked about walking into her studio and just like seeing the damage and just starting to cry. Devastating. But then she said, you know, stop crying. And I was like, I have 10 days to redo this. And she pulled on all of her resources. Every woman who worked in her workshop, even her son was helping reconstructed dresses, friends from church. She pulled her entire community together to get this job done because it was such a big deal. So she remade uh, the wedding dress in five days, something that had taken her two months up to that point to create, remade all the other dresses, hand delivered that all of the dresses to to Newport, Rhode Island the morning of the wedding. And she tells a story is that, you know, she went up to the front door to all of these beautiful dresses and boxes. And the butler told her that she had to use the service entrance in the back. And she told him if the bride wants her dress today, (laughs) she's coming in through that door. No, thank you. So in 1964, and this touches on that point specifically, in 1964, the popular publication Saturday Evening Post published an article on Anne Lowe calling her society's best kept secret. And one of the things that repeatedly came up in the two-day symposium at Winterthur was the fact that Lowe's work wasn't exactly secret, and there's plenty of press coverage to prove it. However, Jackie Kennedy and many of her other high-profile clients didn't necessarily publicly claim Lowe as the designer of their gowns. So how did those established social hierarchies and race relations factor in Lowe's omission in the press coverage of those socialites' wardrobes at that time. So one of the major tribulations of the Jacqueline Kennedy wedding dress was that she didn't get credit in the press for it. And that was a huge blow to her. 
all of her clients knew that she made that dress. And I mean, that was part of the issue with press. Her clients were members of the social register. She liked to brag about that. Very elite women. And they were not kind of interested in going to dressmakers and other people who could be accessed by everyone. They like to keep those things secret, as they would say. And so they weren't kind of eager to advertise Anne Lowe's name. But another aspect of that was that she was an American designer. They very much considered her to be a dressmaker and not an haute couturier like Christian Dior or Balenciaga. And so this idea that American fashion was less valuable than French fashion was certainly an idea that was very strong, even among fashion designers in um, New York. It took us a long time to shake off the shadow of Paris from the New York industry. But the fact that she was a black woman was also a contributing factor. You know, her clients underpaid her. So many factors go into kind of the reason why it took her so long to emerge in this national conversation. That being said, you know, the New York Times was going to her in the 1950s and 60s to ask her, you know, what are the newest trends in debutante gowns? Um, She was credited as Nina Auchincloss, Jacqueline Kennedy's stepsister, as she was credited as, as Nina's dress designer in Vogue in 1955. She wasn't an unknown name, but she certainly wasn't known kind of outside of these circles for her impact on American fashion until very late in her career right. in the 1960s. Right, right, right. And, and that period of her career was exceptionally challenging as well. I mean, she was definitely getting her flowers in that moment in some respects, but she also had a lot of, a lot of other things happening. She had some financial turmoil and a succession of different businesses and also in terms of her health. So what was going on with her at that time? So she, as we mentioned before, she was not really interested in the business aspects of her dress, and she tended to undercharge for her work. When her clients haggled with her, instead of kind of simplifying design to fit the price, she really wanted to produce that beautiful gown. And so she would sell it um, under price. During the 50s, her son kept her books, and this was a really stable period of her career financially. But as we mentioned before, he died tragically in a car accident in 1958. In 1960, her shop was seized by the IRS because she wasn't paying her taxes. At the same time, she had to undergo a risky eye surgery. Um, She actually had her right eye removed because it was so damaged from glaucoma. She was recovering in the hospital when she gets a call from the IRS. And she tells them, look, like, I don't have anything else to take. But they called her to tell her that her back taxes were anonymously paid off. (laughs) She always suspected that Jacqueline Kennedy paid um, her back taxes. But her clients, some of her clients really did support her and came through for her when she really needed them. A woman named um, the Baroness von Langendorf was a loyal client and uh, paid for her funeral, for example, when she passed. But these financial troubles were going to follow her kind of throughout the rest of her career. She just really had a hard time pricing and structuring um, kind of her business in that way. She needed somebody on the other. She needed a Pierre Berger. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I just like to point out that so many designers, Paul Poiret um, was kind of notoriously died in debt. Um, so many creative designers and artists of all kinds suffer from these issues. And also, too, in the 1960s, she started parlaying um collaborating with other businesses. Yes. Would you want to mention just a couple of those? One of the most important was Madeline Couture. So she did work for Saks Fifth Avenue for a time, and that was not very financially advantageous for her. She declared bankruptcy in 1963 after that, but she started working for Madeline Couture, and it was a shop owned by um, Benjamin and Ione's daughter. It had been started by Benjamin's mother. And the 
key aspect of this relationship is that they were really interested in promoting Anne Lowe. They hired a publicist. They were the ones who were sending out all of these letters to have her appear on the Mike Douglas show, her only television appearance, as far as I know. And the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, they have a blog post where you can see that footage. You can hear her talking. There's a fashion show. So if you're interested, definitely check that out. And also see how quite stylish she was herself. She had a very particular look. She understood the assignment when it came to projecting herself as a designer. And what's interesting is that image of a designer, especially a a female designer, was kind of developing at that time, especially in the United States. So she had these very severe, chic, black ensembles, definitely kind of what we think of what a designer looks like. Yeah, yeah. And she loved hats, too. Yes. Fabulous, as always. So we've mentioned Elizabeth Keckley very briefly at the top of this episode. Um, One of the very first episodes of Dressed that we ever recorded was, of course, on Elizabeth. And you close the exhibition with this final section that's on legacy. So I'm hoping that you might speak a little bit about both Keckley and Lowe's legacy in terms of the opportunities for African-American fashion designers today. Absolutely. So in my master's thesis, I really look at Keckley and Lowe as transitional designers, women who've been able to benefit from enslaved labor, Keckley directly and Lowe through her grandmother and mother, and transform that labor into lucrative businesses. The vast majority of Black American women during the 19th and early 20th century worked in agriculture as sharecroppers or as domestic servants. There are very few opportunities. So to be able to own your own business, to work in um, kind of an occupation that was relatively safe and clean, this was a huge deal for Black women. And so they really kind of transformed. They lived through this period where we see American design kind of, um, you know, rise and come into its own, definitely much more with Lowe than with Keckley. And this idea of the fashion designer emerge. When Lowe started her career, she was a dressmaker. When she ended it, she was a fashion designer. And that's a change that took place over her lifetime and that she contributed to through her aesthetics, the way she presented herself, the way she talked about her design as a creative artistic pursuit, the way she branded and marketed herself in the press. All of these contributed to what we think of as designer, which is very different than what we think of as an early 20th century dressmaker. Yeah. And the quality of her creations as well. Absolutely. You know, some people have said, well, you know, if she would have been a white man, she might have been Christian Dior. Absolutely. The quality of her work was that good. And her beautiful, very feminine aesthetic was so in line with what was happening in fashion, especially during the 1950s and early 60s, that she really, you know, she, people said if she had worked in France, but she really had the all the makings to become a nationally known, respected designer. But being black, being a woman, you know, having that background And the U.S. wasn't really ready for that at that point as well. But I think that one of the reasons her story gets lost as well, and this is a major thesis of the exhibition, is that she was a couturier. Mm -hmm. Um, She wasn't working in the ready-to-wear industry. And so much of New York's fashion story is about ready-to-wear. And so in the contemporary period, we look at um, contemporary designers. And one of the most important is B. Michael, because he's also a couturier working in New York. And he certainly does ready-to-wear as well. But I really love that he's continuing this couture tradition. Yeah, yeah. And and he actually spoke at the symposium. And actually, now that I think about it, I think it was him who pointed out that that it was Anne Lowe was like, look, she was working as a plumier. She was working as an embroiderer. She was doing all these things where these other haute couturiers in Paris had were outsourcing a lot of that work to specialty makers. She was doing it all in-house. So Liz, thank you so much for joining us to share the incredible story of Anne Lowe. She was an extraordinarily talented couturier. And, you know, one could only wonder where her work might have gone had she had 
various proper forms of support, you know, and and also too, maybe even the free reign to push her boundaries as a maker. What would she have made, perhaps, if she had explored other realms outside of that, you know, bread and butter of the fantasy dresses that she became known for? Her talents were right there on par with the best of the best. Absolutely. She was very influential as an American fashion maker. And I hope that this exhibition and the accompanying book and also this podcast and more and more interest on her will really um, place her in that echelon of great American designers. Liz, thank you for sharing your ongoing scholarship on Anne Lowe. April, as you mentioned, listeners have been requesting this episode for years now. And Liz's exhibition up at Winterthur Museum in Delaware is a seminal exploration of Anne Lowe's life and work. And it is on View Dress listeners through January 7th, 2024. And April, you talked about it at the top of the show. You actually got to see the exhibition in person. Can you tell me a little bit more about it or maybe highlight a few of your favorite pieces? Because like I said, I'm familiar with very specific pieces, but there are so, so many more Anne Lowe's out there in the world. And it is a delight when scholars uh, track them down. Everybody gets very excited when a new Anne Lowe gets discovered somewhere. (laughs) Um, But the exhibition itself is in the galleries, the contemporary galleries um, that are associated with the Winterthur Museum. And it is the most comprehensive exhibition on Anne Lowe to date. It has 40 gowns um, ranging in date from the 1920s into the 1960s. And I just want to mention something that Liz and I did not talk about in the interview. Uh, Liz talked about the Axar Ben debutante ball gown that's in the exhibition. The wearer of said gown was at the fashion symposium, which was pretty amazing. Anne Lowell and Jessup, she was there both days. Um, So it was really, really cool to actually get to meet one of Anne Lowe's clients as well. But favorite pieces, I mean, the show is so beautiful. It's exceptionally well done. Um, The exhibition design is beautiful. The costume mounting is beautiful. It's just, you know, from tip to top, really spectacular exhibition. It's really hard because of that to pick a favorite. The one that I'm going to mention may not necessarily exactly be my aesthetic favorite, but it's intellectually my favorite. And it's this gown that was made for musician Elizabeth Mance in the 1960s. And she was a pianist, a professional pianist. And so the gown itself in up at the top and at the hips, it looks like a sheath gown. It's very fitted at the waist and fitted at the hips. It is in this pale ice blue satin with kind of a net overlay and then a pale uh, pale ice blue lace motifs over it. And the lace motifs cover the entire dress, um, except for from one hip across the knees down to kind of like the lower portion of the skirt is a swath of the pale blue satin that doesn't have lace on it. And on that high hip, there's like half of a big floppy satin bow. And this was a design detail that Anne Lowe put in this little swath across the front. So when she sat down, she had some give when she was sitting at the piano. And when she sits, it's like this perfect little like wow. graphic detail of the dress. And there's only half a bow at the hip because you don't need the full bow because she's sitting on the piano bench. And <laughs> and just another little detail about this dress too, Liz mentioned the term fussy work when Anne would cut out 
you know, flowers out of a printed fabric and then overcast the edges and then use them as appliques. That's actually what this lace is all over this gown. So she got a pale blue lace and then cut out the flower details of it that had cording around the edge and then applique them onto the net. So tons of, uh, of handwork went into this dress. And I just love how smart it is as well. Yeah, I mean, she was a true master of her craft. Like she's incredibly, incredibly talented architect of design and just so thoughtful. And, you know, a contemporary of Christian Dior, but they're, you know, how rarely are they spoken together in the same sentence? And yet she is just, if not more so <laughs> influential within her sphere, right? So it's, it really challenges that those traditional narratives that we've all heard in a really, really beautiful way. So April, my favorite dress is Anne Lowe's American Beauty dress from 1966-67. Did you by chance have the honor of seeing it in person? <laughs> yes. It is, of course, covered in roses, um, as are probably at least a dozen of the other gowns that are in the exhibition. You know, flowers were one of Anne Lowe's specialty, these really delicate, beautiful, handmade flowers. And there are so many of these flower dresses within the show. But that one is is particularly special. Yeah, I mean, I every time I post this on Art of Dress, it gets like tens of thousands of likes. It is one of it. I think it is one of my favorites, if not my favorite dress in the history of fashion because it, it just is so incredibly beautiful and it's it has like this it's like a silk dress it's otherwise kind of you know simple in shape it's an ampere style from the 1960s it has a little bit of a bustle drape at the back but it's covered in these like in this swath of roses that extend from the shoulders all the way down the to the lower back and then all the way down the back and it kind of cascades around to the front and just yeah these beautiful American beauty is a is a type of rose. And it's so the dress is fittingly called American beauty. And it's just these pink silk satin flowers. Incredibly beautiful. We'll post images. Don't you worry, dress listeners. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And very, very cool is actually there. It's featured in the exhibition catalog with a detailed view of oh, the wow. inside of the bodice. So you can actually see inside the dress. And something else that Liz and I didn't really talk about is that um, a lot of Anne Lowe's, even for her debutante gowns, a lot of the gowns were considered a little bit sexy because they had these very low backs, right? More than a few debutante mothers were slightly displeased about how much <laughs> Um, back was revealed for their daughter's debuts. But Anne Lowe did this specifically. She said that she didn't want their escorts, their dancing partners, to get the, their fingerprints on the dress itself. Oh my gosh. So she made these low backs, and that's the reason why. So every detail is so thought of. I just, I love yes. it so much. And I'm so glad actually that you mentioned the exhibition catalog, because if you cannot, like myself, dress listeners, make it to Delaware, you can get, of course, the incredible exhibition catalog of the same name, Anne Lowe, American Couturier, and you, we can actually link to it in our show notes. You can get it on our dress bookshelf. So we cannot say enough great things about this catalog, which of course features gorgeous details of Lowe's designs, like the interiors of garments as April was just referencing. Yeah, and the catalog goes into so much more detail about a lot of things that Liz and I did not discuss in depth, including a lot more about Jackie's wedding dress and also a little bit of an incident that occurred a few years later when Lowe became upset at the first lady. She was the first lady at this time over how she, Lowe, was cited in the press as the designer um, or not. Or not cited. cited. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> so, um, you know, also, you know, 
Winterthur undertook this other astonishing endeavor to recreate Jackie's wedding dress. The original, which is held at the JFK Library and Presidential Museum, is far too delicate to, to be displayed. So they partnered with a fashion designer and educator, Katja Rolsey, who went to the Presidential Museum, studied the dress in detail, and then she recreated it for the exhibition using Anne Lowe's techniques as best as she could figure them out to be. Um, and she also contributed a really wonderful chapter in the exhibition catalog documenting this portion of the project. And I just want to give a very special word of thanks here to Alexandra Deutsch and Kim Collison and the staff of Winterthur for having dressed to the symposium. Um, dress listeners, if you have never been to Winterthur like I had, this was my first visit. It will not be my last. It is a truly amazing place to visit. The museum itself is cited in the 175 room Yes, you heard me correctly. <laughs> Former home of the DuPont family. And the collection that the that the museum houses, it's, it's kind of like historic house slash museum. Um, but it is one of the best, if not the best, repositories of American decorative arts in the entire world. That is, that is the entirety of the museum. They also have an incredible American material culture degree program at Winterthur with an emphasis in conservation. Um, and not to mention the incredible expansive and very beautiful gardens and grounds where you can actually it's so big you can go hiking if you really want to so a trip to Winterthur highly recommend no notes on a very superbly run symposium and I'm just curious is it the famed DuPont family of the textile you industry? would be correct who actually oh. made their fortune before the American Revolution in gunpowder so from gunpowder to textiles to chemicals, there's a whole history <laughs> there. Uh, yeah, th different story for a different day, perhaps. Yeah, we have done an episode on DuPont in terms of in the context of Lycra. But yes, different story. But that's super fascinating. But also fitting that they have a textile and dress collection. And on that enthusiastic recommendation, April, for the exhibition and the exhibition catalog, that does it for us today, dress listeners. And may you consider how American makers have influenced what's in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So please write to us at our email at hello at dressedhistory.com. Dressedhistory.com is also our website where you can learn more about the show and anything else we have up our fashionable sleeves, like our upcoming fashion history tours in 2024 in New York and Paris, and our newest edition fashion history classes. You can also DM us at Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels to accompany each week's episode. And to find content connected to this specific episode, look for the hashtag dressed 334. That's dressed and the numbers 334. Did you know that you can now listen to dressed ad free for just $3 a month? Check out the link in our show notes or in our Instagram link tree to subscribe to our exclusive content, which is the ad free version of dressed. You can also find Anne Lowe, American Couturier, the exhibition catalog on our dressed bookshelf at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash dressed. And be assured that your purchase benefits an independent bookseller every time you shop from our bookshelf. You will find not only this title, but more than 100 of our other favorites or featured fashion history titles at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash dress. You can also find dress listeners a direct link to purchase the book in our show notes as well as a direct link to our bookshop. Thank you as always for tuning in and more dress coming your way on Thursday.
Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of Dressed Media.